Good morning. In just a minute, I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, starting with verse 14, if you'd like to turn there and follow along in your own Bible. We've been asking the question, what is God like? We've been looking at how Jesus gives us a simple one-word answer to that question through telling parables, these, these little stories that end with a twist. Through parables, Jesus has told us that God is generous. Generous, like a, like a waiting father who eagerly welcomes home his wayward son, who tenderly woos his hard-hearted son, and then lavishly gives what we don't deserve. He gives grace and mercy, forgiveness and love, and with that, the power to begin again. God is generous, like this good Samaritan who lays down his life for those who don't deserve it, who cannot help themselves. God offers a, a costly grace because it costs Jesus his life on the cross to gain our salvation. That's why grace can be defined as God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. God is generous like this crazy owner of a vineyard who gives full wages to those who haven't earned it, haven't worked for it, and who may not even appreciate it. He gives unfairly, and that's a good thing. So what is God like? God is generous. And that leads us to a second great question. What does this generous God expect from us? What does he expect from you and from me once we've experienced his generous grace? How are we supposed to respond once we've been forgiven by his generous love? God expects us to live differently, to live like Jesus. Each week I've quoted Tim Keller who said, God invites us to come as we are, but not to stay as we are. Because at the core of his being, God is generous. And it's because of his generosity towards us that we can then learn how to live generously towards others. We develop a generous heart, a generous faith, a generous lifestyle like Jesus. And this morning's parable is going to crack open this God-inspired personal transformation, but in a way that should also take you by surprise. Just as the other parables were intended to sort of hit you with shock and awe, this parable should do the same. It's an abrupt change from the other parables we've seen so far. It takes a sharp right-angle turn because at first glance, it doesn't have any grace in it at all. In fact, if this was the only passage of the Bible you ever read, I think you'd come away with a flawed understanding of who God is and what he expects from us. You'd come away with the opposite of grace. You'd come away believing that your salvation depends solely on you and how hard you work for it. That's why it's so important to read any individual passage of the Bible in its larger context and in light of the rest of the Bible. You don't ever want to isolate a single passage from the whole of Scripture because the Bible really paints a big canvas of truth that all works together. And we can't, shouldn't just like clip out one little small part without seeing how it fits into the whole picture. This is called the parable of the talents from Matthew 25. It's in a series of parables Jesus told as he was preparing his disciples for his death, his resurrection. And in response to their questions about the future, Jesus tells a series of parables about when he will return in judgment, his second coming, when he will come and set all things right. We don't know when that's going to be, 
and beware of anybody who tells you that they've got it all figured out because Jesus very clearly at the beginning of this series of parables says that nobody is going to know, nobody's going to be able to predict his return. Our parable begins then in chapter 25, starting with verse 14. And Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five talents, which in modern Bibles is translated five bags of gold. To another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then the master went on his journey. The man who had received the five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. And the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man came with the two bags of gold also and said, Master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. And his master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man who came who received only one bag of gold. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and I gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him. Give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. Let's give thanks to him for that. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Man, where is the grace in that? The third guy is cast into hell. Where's the generous God in that parable? There is no get-out-of-jail-free card in this story. I mean, based on what we've learned about a generous, merciful God in the other parables, you sort of expect that at the end of the story when the third guy comes with his one buried bag of gold to the master, you know, the master would say, hey, don't worry about it. In fact, I'm going to give you what I gave to the guy who doubled his money. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. The master, who really represents Jesus himself, doesn't offer any grace at all at this point. This parable seems to be almost anti-grace, incongruent with grace, out of sync with generosity. 
How, on the one hand, could Jesus tell that beautiful parable of the undeserved welcome of the prodigal son, and then, on the other hand, tell this story of, of harsh judgment and condemnation? Well, it's because God takes his generosity seriously, and he expects us to take it seriously, too. God invites us to come as we are, but not to stay as we are. Part of our problem in hearing this parable is that if you've been around church for for any length of time, you know it is a go-to passage used over and over again by pastors during what? The typical church stewardship program. You could go online and find a thousand sermons that use this passage for the annual stewardship campaign. It always gets reduced to the three T's. God wants you to use your time, your talent, your treasure here at the church, and we hope you'll you'll up your pledge this year by a percentage point or two. And then it's followed by instructions on how to fill out the pledge cards, a little mood music to pledge by. Have you ever been in a church like that? People dread that Sunday. Am I right? Can I tell you something? When I get together with other pastors and they let their hair down, you know, what little they have left, when they say what they really think about their congregation sort of off the record, they hate it too. They hate it more than the congregation hates it. You know why? Because they know that most 21st century American Christians are really cheap. Really cheap when it comes to their giving. Did I say that out loud? Well, it's true. That's how pastors feel, and all the statistics back them up. Compared to poorer Christians in other parts of the world, American Christians are generally wealthier and also very stingy. Give a much smaller percentage of their income to God's work. Forget about tithing. You know, that's the biblical standard, 10% of a person's income. It's not a law. We live in the New Testament era where tithing is really a goal to shoot for, but most pastors gave up preaching tithing a long time ago because they'd be doing backflips down the main aisle if their church members were given 2 or 3% of their gross. They know that if their members were given even 4%, their churches and their mission programs, their, their facilities, they, they have no money problems whatsoever. But most pastors know that as much as folks will you know, sing about loving God, will pray about being devoted to God, will talk about wanting to give God their whole hearts, guess what, that doesn't translate into what people do with their money. And so there's a huge disconnect. What pastors hear is nothing but excuses. The most popular one for American Christians is this. I'll take my giving seriously when I start making a little more money. When I'm making just a little more money, then I'll be able to give God what I should. And the pastors all know that day will never come. It never happens. Other expenses pop up. You got to lease that new expensive car. You got to send kids to college. You you got way too much credit card debt because you got to buy all this stuff. You got to go on those vacations. We have to redo the house. So the pastors all know that day will never come. The people in their congregations will never reach the point where they are making enough money because people, if folks don't put Christ as Lord over their finances right now, it's not going to happen by magic at some time in the future. 
Their giving is the last thing on their list of monthly expenses. My, my pastor friends know that God gets what is left over. All the other bills are paid, God gets the leftovers. And so my pastor friends, they all hate begging their congregations to take their giving seriously. But every year, they got to whip out the old time, talent, treasure thing, beat that dead horse one more time, all hoping that all the while hoping that some wealthy person in the congregation will die and leave the church a big gift in their will. Did I say that out loud? Folks, this parable has nothing to do with stewardship. That's not why Jesus told the story. I mean, it has some good stewardship principles in it, but it has nothing to do with the typical annual church stewardship campaign. It has everything to do with getting you to see that what you believe about God has a real impact on the way you live your life. What you believe about God has a real impact on the way you live your life. And for that reason, it's a parable that should make you feel uncomfortable. If you don't squirm just a little bit in your seat today, then I haven't really done my job in accurately proclaiming the word of God. You see, Jesus was telling his disciples that physically he was going away from them. After the cross came the resurrection and his numerous appearances, but then will come his ascension into heaven. He wasn't going to stay physically with them on earth. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit for all believers at Pentecost, the event that launched the church. Physically, Jesus was departing, and he was leaving the church in their hands to guide, to guard, and to grow. Jesus expected the church to grow and multiply based on their good leadership, their good stewardship of the church. After all, his great commission in Matthew 28 was to go to all the world, all ethnic groups, to preach the gospel, to baptize, to make disciples. His great commandment was to love people like Jesus loved people. That was the mission of the church. That's still the mission of the church. And he was entrusting this most sacred thing into the hands of his closest disciples. This parable was about the attitude, the outlook that they would need in order to effectively carry out his orders. Jesus was entrusting them with his most precious thing, the future of his body, the church. And through this parable, he was describing the kind of mentality, the kind of faith that they would need to follow through on growing Christ's church. Think with me for a moment. This is called the parable of the talents. Now, a talent was not some kind of skill that you would use, you know, when you were going to audition on America's Got Talent, you know, like you can sing opera while gargling jello or play the guitar with your toes. A, a talent was a measure of weight. The value depended on what was being weighed, either copper or silver or gold, but a talent was a significant amount of money. Most scholars would say that it would take an ordinary laborer 20 years to earn just one talent of gold. In our economy, that would mean a talent would be about $300,000 for a minimum age worker. The master gave the first servant five talents, or the equivalent of about $1.5 million. The second servant got two talents, or about $600,000. And the third servant got $300,000. So even though there's a big difference between the five talents and the one talents, 
the servant who got the one talent was still entrusted with a pretty significant amount of money. And in the end, the, act, the owner actually gives both the principal and what they earned, the interest, to the first two servants. He doesn't keep any of it. He's actually a very generous master. The first two servants would probably be expecting some kind of reward, but to get it all? They never would have expected that. And listen to what the master says to them. He says, come, enter into the joy of your master. You have made me very happy. Let's celebrate. The master is so proud of them, proud of their accomplishments. He's thrilled over what they've done. He takes joy in what they've achieved, so much so that he gives it all away to them. I mean, he is one generous guy. But this third servant, he didn't see the master that way. Notice the first words out of his mouth in verse 24. He says, I knew that you were a hard man. Guess what? He got it wrong. The third guy had a wrong view of the master and had his mind made up even before he received his bag of gold. He looked at his master as someone who was hard and harsh instead of loving and gracious. The great writer A.W. Tozer was right when he said that what we think about God is the most important thing about us. If we view God as a tyrant, then we're going to filter everything through that kind of lens. If we don't know God's true nature revealed to us through Christ, then our idea of God is going to be skewed. Our preconceived notions will prevent us from seeing him as a God of grace. And as a result, it will change the way you live. A right view of God always leads to actions based on faith. But a faulty view of God is going to lead to actions based on fear. Fear. What this parable teaches is that the real decisions and actions that you take in life, they reveal what you really believe about God. Your actions show what you really believe. The problem with the unprofitable servant was not the fact that he didn't make a profit. The problem was in what he believed about the master. He didn't believe right about the boss. And he didn't believe right about himself. He was operating out of fear. How do we account for the level of anger that the master shows at the end of this parable? What's that all about? Well, let me retell the parable this way. Imagine that you're a passenger on the Titanic, you know, the famed ocean liner that sank after hitting an iceberg. You got the last seat in the last lifeboat, and as you're halfway down to being lowered to the water, a man appears on the, at the railing on the deck above, and he catches your eye, and you see the desperation in his face, and he throws a bundle down to you, and, and you catch it like a football. You unwrap the bundle, and it's a newborn baby girl. Over the confusion and the sound of the waves whacking against the hull, you hear him yell, take care of my baby. Raise my child as your own. And then he's gone. You hold that child. You accept that responsibility. You adopt her and you raise her as your own. And then 25 years later, it turns out the man didn't die. And he's tracked you down. Imagine his joy when he's reunited with his daughter. And he sees her thriving, a strong, vibrant, intelligent, beautiful young woman. Imagine how he would throw his arms around your neck and say, thank you, well done. Imagine the joyful celebration you would share. 
Now imagine the emotion if he comes back after 25 years and found that his daughter was not thriving. That in fact she had been treated as a burden rather than a blessing. That she had been unloved, neglected, tormented, or even abused. Can you imagine the level of anger he would have towards the one who did that to his daughter? Jesus is giving to his disciples his most precious thing, the future of the church. And when he returns, he expects to see a thriving, healthy church, full of life. Now, you may not be an apostle or a bishop who has a major responsibility over the church. You may not be a pastor or an elder or even a deacon who has responsibility in a local church. But you do have responsibility for nurturing the spiritual life God has given you because you are part of the church. You have a responsibility for that part of that is you and that is your family, your part in the church. At the most basic level, you do have a responsibility to nurture and care for your own relationship with Christ. That's your bag of gold. That's your baby. And your actions show what you really believe. If you really encountered this generous God, if you've really experienced forgiveness, it has to affect the way you live, the way you treat people the way you think, your emotions, your habits, whether your words are filled with gossip or your words filled with grace. It has to affect your friendships, your marriage, your singleness, your sex life, your family, how you vote, how you do your work, how you study, how you act on the sports field. It has to affect everything so that the very generous character of Christ permeates to every corner of your life, including your finances. I mean, faith and finances are uncomfortable because what you do with your giving is one of the few ways you can actually measure your faith. But it's right there in black and white on your taxes, unless you're, you know, fudging the numbers. What's this parable say? Jesus has placed what is most precious to him in your hands, scaled to your capacity so that you are given what you can handle. He did so anticipating that you will nurture your spiritual life and that he will have great joy over you as you share in his generous love. But a day of accountability is coming and he wants you to take seriously the calling he has placed on your life and the responsibility he has given you as a person who is being transformed by his generous grace. This week, I have to tell you, I was really, really distraught over the news of the 85 Christians who were killed by a suicide bomber as they gathered for worship in All Saints Church in Peshawar, Pakistan. And then the reports of Christians being targeted and killed in Syria and in Egypt at a shopping mall in Nairobi, Kenya, and in Nigeria and other places. I mean, make no mistake about it, there is a global war going on against Christians by terrorists committed to radical Islam. Their actions show what they really believe. And the most disturbing thing is that these terrorists are more committed to their twisted view of Islam than most Christians are to the gospel of Christ. My pastor friends are probably going to kick me out of the club for revealing their true thoughts today. But while they're sort of begging their parishioners to maybe increase their giving by half a percentage point, they know the Islamists are strapping on suicide vests. Actions show what you really believe. Those terrorists are 100% sold out to what they believe in. 
You know, it used to be that way for Christians. Used to be. Did I say that out loud? Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for the times we've buried this treasure that you've given to us, this generous, gracious forgiveness and love that you've given to us. And out of fear, we have lived rather than out of faith. Help us to see who you really are, this generous God, and let that inspire us to live by faith, to risk, to venture out like those two servants who put, put what they were given to work and were, had the joy of seeing the great response and the great results, Lord. Give us that kind of forward-leaning life where we embrace your generous love and therefore live it out among other people. Give us that kind of life, Lord. We ask it in your name.